So Jack read the beginning of our Palm Sunday passage for us from Luke 19 to begin to give us some context for our palm waving that as we enact and, and rehearse um, this, this joyous uh, receiving of Christ as he comes into Jerusalem. I'm going to read a few verses and the end of that. He read up to verse 40. I'm going to read verses 41 through 44. As Jesus came to the city and observed it, he wept over it. He said, if only you knew on this of all days the things that lead to peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. The time will come when your enemies will build fortifications around you, encircle you, and attack you from all sides. They will crush you completely you and the people within you. They won't leave one stone on top of another within you because you didn't recognize the time of your gracious visit from God. And pray with me. Father, let us recognize the time of your gracious visit. Um, prepare us, prepare our hearts. Uh, prepare uh, this this group um, to to listen well and and to hear from you. We thank you in Jesus' name, Amen. So that's the part of the passage that always gets chopped off uh, from like lectionary readings and stuff for good reason, right? As it, we've we've been studying um, from the Book of Lamentations throughout this Lent, but. If you had been following along in the book of Luke, in Luke's gospel, it's apparent that Jesus is on the move. That's what the whole latter half of Luke's gospel is talking about. He, in chapter 9, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. And for us that know that story, that's a foreboding turn in focus. Jesus ask his disciples as he sets his face towards Jerusalem simply to follow me. So they've been following him. They've been following him around Judea as he heals and as he tells stories of the kingdom. They've been following him as he sends out his apprentices to tell of the peace that God is accomplishing and to invite others to be a part of it. They've been following Jesus as he teaches them how to pray, how to pray like he prays to the heavenly father that his kingdom might come on earth as it is in heaven. Each of these activities kind of has the same contour to it, renewal, restoration, rebuilding, heaven invading earth's cracks and thorns in the kingdom of God coming. So Jesus finally arrives at Jerusalem. And by the time he gets here, he's, he's kind of whipped the crowd into a frenzy. There's enough hype and fanfare to generate quite a, quite a crowd. And when crowds gather, they're normally viewed as a threat. Uh, there was an emperor named Trajan in 
111, uh, and he wrote to Pliny the Younger about this phenomenon, how these crowds are always threatening, and they're normally politically threatening, even if they don't claim to be about politics. He writes, when people gather together for a common purpose, whatever name they might give it and whatever function they might assign to them, they soon become political groups. <laughs> so we understand this as a, as a politically charged crowd around Jesus, waving palms in royal expectation. There are all sorts of signals for who Jesus is, or at least who the crowd hopes that he is. This is the king. This is the king returning for the first time. There are clues, though, that this is a different sort of king. All these little subversive edits to the, the royal story that we would expect. First, instead of a, a war horse, like a knight in shining armor on a big white horse, Jesus comes on a humble colt. But of course, this is answering that Zechariah expectation from Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Sing aloud, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king will come to you. He is righteous and victorious. He is humble and riding on a colt, the offspring of a donkey. But in our context, this would be something like a presidential motorcade for like an 04 Honda Civic, right? Like, this is sturdy, it's useful, it's blue collar, it's common. Interestingly enough, also in this Luke story, and this is kind of liturgically embarrassing, right? Because we, we build this whole day around Palm Sunday. Luke doesn't even record that they have palms. If you notice when Jack was reading, there's no palms. It's a palmless Sunday. Most of the other Gospels emphasize these palms for their royal resonance. When you read Luke, no palms. The people cry, though, and this is common to all the stories. The people cry, Hosanna, Hosanna. This means God saves, or, or maybe even, even more appropriate, save us is what this means. The crowd cries, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens. <coughs> All of this commotion freaks out not only, uh, not only for its political force, the, the, the rulers, the, the occupying Roman force, but also the Pharisees. You, you, I'm kind of sympathetic to this. They're the religious gatekeepers of the day, and they want to manage expectations a little bit. They say, tell your disciples to stop. They're obviously taking this whole thing a little too far. They talk about peace. But not just like this inner peace or some sort of calm, meditative bliss, but this like cosmic peace. This peace that is stitching back together heaven and earth. The way that Jesus was teaching them to pray on earth as it is in heaven, this is what this peace is doing, is realigning heaven and earth, reacquainting them, healing that division. As they're and they're talking about this regarding Jesus on a donkey. You could see why the religious 
leaders might be a little embarrassed by this, if anything. As he rides into David's city, all this has these huge religious resonances. I'm reminded of, of C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He makes this kind of argument about Jesus, that Jesus can only kind of be three different things. Maybe you've heard this, that Jesus is either, you know, he's either a liar or a lunatic or he's the Lord. And so I, I can see where these, these religious leaders kind of know, know these lines and they say, you know, we don't want to get too excited about this guy because if he's lying, then we're going to be embarrassed. He's claiming to be something he's not. Or maybe he's a lunatic and he's purporting to be someone he could never be. Israel's awaited Messiah, the Lord. But maybe he is saying what he is, and that's the Lord. And the crowds are treating him that way. Let's not get too wild here. So Jesus replies, I tell you, if they were silent, the stones would shout. The very rocks would cry out and testify. And I've, I've sung that line in praise songs. And normally those praise songs kind of coach us, like sing louder, because if you don't sing, like the acoustic like pavers will sing for you or something. <clears throat> that inanimate objects know the song better than us or something. And scripture kind of talks about this in, in a certain way that creation responds to its creator and sings. Like, like Isaiah 55 talks about trees clapping hands at the peace that's coming forth. Or Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Or even Revelation talks about in chapter 5, every creature, every created thing on heaven and earth or under the earth or in the sea shouting, blessing and honor and glory and power to the Lamb who sits on the throne. But given how ironic, how kind of fraught this procession already is, given what we know about how Jesus' story in Jerusalem ends, I wonder if Jesus talking about if they were silent, the rocks would cry out, if that's less of kind of a humble brag of Jesus or less of trying to like get them to sing louder and more of kind of a prophetic lament over what's about to happen. That the rocks crying out is Jesus's prophetic lament. You see, it's these rocks that will testify to who Jesus is and what God's up to. It's these rocks and that eventually they, they stand tall and they're all lined up and they're straight and <clears throat> they've been well constructed, but later they'll be in a, a pile, a heap of rubble. It's these rocks that represent everything that crowd understands about themselves and about God. Even the rubble of their precious temple that will be torn down years later in this temple is this place of overlap of heaven and earth. It's a place of worship, and it's a place of reconciliation. This temple would be mown down. Jesus knew that a hard rain was going to fall 
on him and on this place. This is the very stuff that we've been studying over this last month and a half. The very stuff of Jeremiah and Lamentations. But none of that can derail God's plans for whole making shalom in his creation. You see, there's this brilliant little spark. I love when, when you sit down to read scripture and you're reading, 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 and you're kind of chugging through it, and sometimes it's hard. Sometimes we don't know what it's saying, let alone what it's saying to us. And then all of a sudden there's a little spark, and you remember something. You make a connection, or, or it cuts, cuts you to the quick. And there's this little spark in the processional cry where they say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens. This is darn near the cry of the angels when Jesus was born. Do you remember when the angels show up to the shepherds in the field and Charlie Brown comes out and they start to talk? Earlier in, the, in Luke, the angels show up to the shepherds and they bear good news of great joy for all people. In the company of angels praises God, singing glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Sounds pretty close, right? Glory in peace. I think, I was telling Sarah earlier, I think, um, Noah, who helped in the processional and who always helps with welcoming and announcing these days, I think she made, she's a very good reader of scripture because I think she made this connection earlier when we were talking about Palm Sunday and uh, that we'd be singing Hosanna and she, she kind of um, abridged and combined these two moments when she, 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 she says, yeah, we're going to sing Hosanna in the highest peace and good things will happen, right? Because uh, and, and at the end, she kind of paused, peace and good things will happen? Like she kind of worked her way through it. <clears throat> but I think she also kind of intuited that these, the, these moments, that the beginning and, and the beginning of the end of Jesus' death are somehow together in the expectation created when God comes into this world in the form of Jesus. Notice that these two passages kind of have the same cadence, glory and peace, which extends from heaven to earth. God's healing presence has arrived. The crowd was saying the right thing. Jesus couldn't silence them. However, then he goes and talks about the rocks. <laughs> and I think that hints that they knew the ending, but they couldn't quite possibly understand how they had to get there. They couldn't foresee what it was going to take over the course of the next week or so for this glory, God's glory, God's presence and for this peace, this whole making shalom to work its way throughout the fabric of creation. They couldn't have seen that. They, they, they knew, but they didn't know. Again, I think we have another clue here related to Jesus's itinerary. You see, where he's arriving is important. He shows up in Jerusalem, 
Jerusalem is this royal city of David. David, their king. David, their anointed one, the one who God laid his hand on to rule God's people and to bring about in some finite and imperfect way God's kingdom. But thing, where big, this is where big things happen. This is where glory and peace would certainly have to arrive if they were going to come. But we're told that Jesus' flight gets kind of routed through the Mount of Olives. What is with that? What is with that detail that Luke goes, makes pains to, to present to us? Well, the Mount of Olives is the place where grief happened. It's the place where grief happened for David. This royal character, that maybe prior to Jesus, the most important character in the Bible. It's a place where David went when he heard that his son Absalom had a conspiracy to kill him. 2 Samuel 15 says, David, his head covered, walked barefoot up the slope of the Mount of Olives, crying. All the people who were there with him covered their heads too, and they cried as they went up. The Mount of Olives is a place of grief. But it's also a place where hope happens. The prophet Zechariah talks about the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14. A day is coming, and this is prophetic speak. This is something off in the distance that leaks back onto our now and changes us, or it should. A day is coming that belongs to the Lord when that which has been plundered from you will be divided among you. The Lord will go out and fight against those nations. It's when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, he will stand upon the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives will be split in half by a very large valley running from east to west. Half of the mountain will move north and the other half south. You will flee through the valley of my mountain. This is, this is rescue and this is escape for God's people. And finally, the Mount of, the Mount of Olives, it's a place of grief for David, it's a place of hope for Zechariah, but I think it's a place of grief and hope for Jesus just a few chapters later in Luke's gospel. He prays to his heavenly father. This is, again, an echo of that prayer that he taught his disciples, that, that he teaches us. That as his closest followers sleep on him, he prays for them that they might not be led into temptation that this cup of suffering might be taken from him, and above all, that thy will be done. He was really committed to this prayer. Maybe we should be committed to praying that way. Even as an angel appears to strengthen Jesus on the Mount of Olives, he sweats blood. With all this intensity, we see both grief and hope. <coughs> This combination of grief and hope is still so present even in the midst of that palm processional. Verse 41 of today's text reports, as Jesus came into the city and observed it, observed it he wept over it. Jesus came, observed, and wept. 
This sounds a whole lot like a Lamentations text. You might imagine this looks a whole lot like the scripture cards that we've been using from Justin Cook, where we observe our city. We, we go, we observe, and we weep. He goes on, if only you knew on this of all, all days the things that would lead to peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The time will come when your enemies will build fortifications around you. They'll encircle you. They'll attack from all sides. They'll crush you, you and the people within you. They won't leave a stone on top of another stone because you didn't recognize the time when God visited you. This sounds a whole lot like the foreboding terror on every side of Lamentations that Jeremiah uses for Jerusalem's plight and plunder. It seems that Jesus, of all people, is a fluent speaker of Lamentation, that brutal, hope-mongering dialect of despair. This is a pretty damning diagnosis. They aren't going to recognize a visit from God. Because for all intents and purposes, what they're experiencing right now is a visit from God. (laughs) They're rolling out the red carpet, so to speak. They're singing the right words. They're humming the right tune. Just seems like they don't know the key. Like it should be in a minor key. He knows this about them. He knows this about us, that there are so many times that God is so present to us, that God is standing right in front of us. And even, even if we knew that was happening, like we always assume about ourselves, if God had just like spelled it out for us, we, we would be ready, right? But so many times we know it's happening. We know what's good for us. We know when we're experiencing divinity, but we're largely so ignorant of it and we're so so hampered, so unable to experience this glory and peace. We're, We're just not present to God's presence. We don't see it. We don't get it. Oftentimes, instead of receiving these moments as gifts, even and especially in the midst of our suffering, our trials, our loneliness, we receive them as as threat or as lack or as opposition, something to be saved from. Perhaps the rocks that signal the destruction of the temple should cry out. Maybe they, they would cry out better because they know what it feels like to lament well. They're thoroughly acquainted with grief and despair. But I think those rocks also know hope when they see it. They know when rebuilding is afoot. They know they have to be rebuilt because they're not just going to rebuild themselves. And they know that rebuilding is probably not going to happen according to their blueprint. They hope for rebuilding even if things will never look the same for them. This week, as I was reading this text, and I was thinking about this tension, this grief and this hope, I couldn't help 
I couldn't shake the passage at the center of John's gospel, chapter 11. This is, this is like uh, if we were doing Family Feud, um, chapter 11, this one verse would be like everyone's memory verse, right? Jesus wept. Everyone can do that one, right? <clears throat> Jesus follows this same trajectory from our passage in Luke's gospel. He comes and he observes and he weeps. This happens related to his friend Lazarus and Lazarus's family. <coughs> Perhaps what's so threatening about Jesus uh, as king is that we've set up in our imaginations that he's supposed to have this like kind of kingly mentality, this like Vinny Vetti Vici, like, I came, I saw, I conquered. And it said over and over again, he does this thing where he, he comes and he sees and he weeps. <laughs> and we don't know what to do with that. Do you feel that difference there? <laughs> That's pretty drastic. John 11. Jesus saw her crying. This is Lazarus' sister. And the Jews who had come with her crying also. And he was deeply disturbed and troubled. He asked, where have you laid them? Or where, where have you laid him? They responded, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to cry. The Jews said, also, also known as Jesus wept. The Jews said, see how much he loved them? Some of them said, he healed the eyes of the man born blind. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was deeply disturbed again when he came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone covered the entrance. Jesus said, remove the stone. A few years back, uh, artist Mako Fujimura, and we talk about him all the time here, <laughs> uh, he came to Duke, and he gave a talk on this major commission he'd done. Um, you can't see it well, but uh, look this up. This is called um, Karis Kairos, the Tears of Christ. Um, he came to Duke to talk about, he had illuminated, um, which is not exactly illustrating, uh, but he had illuminated the, the four holy gospels for the 500-year anniversary of the King James Bible. And I'll always remember the way that he spoke of that brief verse, Jesus wept. That he, he said that that was the center to his whole project. This is perhaps one of the most famous and, and renowned Christian artist alive right now. And at the center of this project, this beautiful, wonderful project, it's a simple phrase, Jesus wept. And perhaps that's appropriate also for him because he, he operates in this, this style and this medium where he, he crushes, he pulverizes all these precious metals and, and, and paints with them but uses water. And as the water... Uh, evaporates. Uh, it creates something new. So for him, he, he's really engaging with the, these tears um, as, as he's illuminating these words. But he spoke of the wastefulness of that time and those tears. After all, Jesus healed Lazarus. Lazarus. He raised him up. Lazarus died eventually again, but for the time being, he raised him up and he presumably didn't need to take the time to grieve this. I remember uh, 
Richard Hayes was was there, and and he uh, he talked about this moment of kind of silence for for Jesus. And he said, at Bethany, the incarnate Word of God stood wordless. Is what happened right there. He didn't have to do that when celebration was coming. So why waste these words? One of Mako's friends stood in front of this painting and he, with kind of that question posed to them, posed to him, and he said, I would not be a Christian apart from those tears, apart from those wasteful tears of Jesus. It seems that Jesus, unlike us, is, is always present to his place and to the people that are around him. And when he's present to him, it often drives him to tears. What could we learn from this art and this discipline of always being attentive and unhurried and hopeful to be able to cry over our neighbors because we know them well enough or cry over ourselves because we know ourselves well enough? So often we, we, we move so fast that we don't have time to grieve But this isn't just grief, this is, this is a hopeful move because it, it lunges towards glory, it lunges towards peace, it, it recognizes God's presence in our midst. So I want to propose a little formula that I think we, we see in these stories. <clears throat> that somehow grief and hope, and Jay, I, I don't have a clicker for this, so you can click through it a little bit. That somehow grief and hope, go ahead, somehow they make way for, they, they give way towards glory and peace. You can do another one. That this is precisely how Jesus is working, how God is working in Jesus. This is how he's working at this tomb side of Lazarus and Bethany, and this is how he's working on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. And all of this is incredibly surprising. Not just because the ingredients are surprising. Like, when you're baking, you shouldn't have surprising ingredients because they're not going to go away. <laughs> you know, like, they're not going to metamorphize uh, in the oven. You know, you, you, you put in something gross, you're normally going to get something gross, but that's not the case here. There is so much transformation happening as we put in grief and hope, and on the other side, we get God's glory and peace. This is why I think this surprise, who would have ever thought grief would go with hope, let alone beget glory? This is why... These things that lead to peace on this palm processional are now so hidden from people's eyes. Because who would have expected for Jesus to turn around and, and, and weep over this festive celebration? Because not only is lament an unexpected thing for a Savior to experience, but resurrection is an unexpected way for glory and peace to manifest. We'd so much rather settle for, for just propping up or reinforcing or like scotch taping the patterns of this world or the ways that we want to imagine healing coming 
than just having the whole paradigm shifted. That's, that's what resurrection does. It completely shifts our paradigm. That's, it, it, it's so wild that we can't even use resurrection to describe what happened to Lazarus because Lazarus died, but Jesus doesn't die anymore. And then when we're in Christ, that happens to us. It's never happened before. What if the remaking of this world is going to happen through the death and resurrection of a Savior? Not through, like, a military coup. or not through just some sort of, like, religious ceremony or phenomenon. But what if death itself and the sin and alienation that has led to it has been decisively dealt with in Jesus? (laughs) What if Jesus conquers death by death and in the process offers this world, offers us new, eternal, unbreakable, unfearful, plenteous, infectious life? (laughs) All we got to do for it is crumble up our plans for our lives, crumble up our plans for this world, Throw them in the trash and just only and completely follow him. That's the offer. It's a, it's a just but everything offer. <laughs> what if Palm Sunday is, is then first and foremost a holiday of lament before it might ever be a holiday of celebration? Because lamentation has kind of the spiritual and emotional integrity to hold all of this together. It holds the disease and the cure together. It holds the not yet and the already together. It holds grief and hope together. And then that grief and that hope ultimately and surprisingly blossoms into resurrection. What would it look like to walk away from this good news story today changed by it. To walk away and wave these palms, having a little better clue of the things that might lead to peace. To ask the Spirit to drop the scales from our eyes that we might see it and participate in it that the Spirit might dig out our ears, that we might listen and hear the Lord's call to say, come, follow me. That that Spirit might rework our imaginations so that we can wave these palms and and say and, and mean Hosanna, which means God, save us. I want to I, I pray, and then we'll just go straight into our, our time of response and, and repentance. And, and maybe, maybe the best response is just Hosanna, to focus on, on praying Hosanna and meaning it. God, save us. Pray with me. Father, we, we thank you for these stories of your son, we thank you for how, how rich they are, uh, for how they call us to live more, more richly, 
more, more deeply, um, more closely aligned with you, that, that we might be challenged to, to live in, in that uncomfortable space between grief and hope as we, as we ever lean towards your glory and peace. Lord, help us know those things that might lead to peace and, and give us the strength and courage to, to do them. Uh, even if that amounts to a pile of rubble, uh, of whatever dreams we had, whatever we thought of ourselves, whatever aspirations um, for our families. Lord, help us sit in that, that, that we, might, we might hope for your resurrection, your new life. We pray all this in Jesus' name.